Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to this 10-part series on health equity. Over the course of this series, we will discuss a broad range of topics connected to health equity. For additional resources and information, be sure to check the podcast notes or visit mphtc.org slash health equity. Hello, this is Paul Gilbert. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'll be serving as your host for this podcast episode, and today's topic, the social determinants of health, is one that I'm very familiar with. Every year I teach a course on health equity, disparities, and social justice in public health. And as the head of training for the Prevention Research Center, I often lead workshops on health equity and the social determinants of health. For this episode, I had conversations with two people who I thought would have unique perspectives and could shed light on this topic. First, I spoke with Dr. Georges Benjamin, who's the executive director of the American Public Health Association. And second, I spoke with Dr. Nalo Johnson. Until recently, Dr. Johnson was the community health manager at Johnson County Public Health, and she is now the division director for health promotion and chronic disease prevention at the Iowa State Department of Public Health. Before we get to those conversations, I'd like to take a moment to talk about a couple of key concepts. In essence, this is laying the foundation for the conversations to come. First off, let's consider what we mean by the word health. The World Health Organization has a very useful definition, which I and my colleagues teach to our students. The WHO says that health is not just the absence of disease. Health is actually a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. And I like that definition because it's well-rounded. It reflects all the ways that we might be well or not well, including different domains of health that often get overlooked, like the mental health and social connections. In addition, the definition says that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Now, this definition was adopted in 1946 as the WHO was being organized, and it aligns very well with the current notion of the social determinants of health. So, okay, what about this second term? What do we mean by the social determinants of health? I like to tell people that, yes, there are some things that we can name as a social determinant of health, like access to good quality schools, but I prefer to explain it as a way of seeing the world. It's a framework or a lens that we use when we consider health in a community or a population. And once a person understands the framework or the way of seeing things, they'll be able to identify the social determinants of health that are most relevant. And this is important because different social determinants will be more or less salient in different communities at different times and in different places. And simply put, the framework is ecological. It means looking at all the contexts that people find themselves in and the ways, either directly or indirectly, that these various contexts shape health status. Now let's turn to Healthy People 2020, which serves as the national blueprint for health objectives for the United States they have a very good, concise definition. Healthy People says that the social determinants of health are the conditions in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. Now, that's a lot packed into a simple statement, but I particularly like the life course element, the recognition that there are different phases of our life from birth to childhood through adulthood and later ages, and that in these different times of our lives, there are different contexts that matter. There are social and physical, environmental, political, or economic and other factors that all influence health in different ways and that we should pay attention to. Now, I think that's enough from me alone. Let's get to the conversations that I had, as I think they'll help illustrate these ideas even more. So in October 2019, I reached out for a perspective from the American Public Health Association, and here's a recording of that conversation. All right, well, joining me today is Dr. Georges Benjamin, who is Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk with him about health equity and the social determinants of health, especially to get his perspective as one of our national leaders and a longtime leader uh, in public health. 
So Dr. Benjamin, thank you very much for taking the time today. I'd like to start with a question about the association itself. Health equity has been uh, an important topic. It's been a theme of some of the, the recent annual meetings. And in fact, on the association's webpage, there's a whole, whole page devoted to health equity. How did it come to hold such a prominent place in the, in the American Public Health Association? Well, you know, the APHA has been around since 1872. And since its founding, um, we have um, saw ourselves in many ways as uh, the champion of, of improving the health for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and if everyone doesn't have equal opportunity for health, then nobody has it. And mm -hmm. we believe very strongly in the World Health Organization's um, definition of health, very, which is a very broad um, concept that health is not just the absence of disease, um, but it's also about well-being. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. It's very much a, a holistic approach to, to health. Uh, very much so. Yeah. You know, one of the, I'm an emergency doc and um, one of the painful revelations for me through all the years I practiced was that 80% of what makes you healthy occurs outside of the doctor's office, mm -hmm. which is the social determinants. You know, and that is a great lead into this topic of the social determinants of health. And I often think of them, and I'll explain it to folks as the, the mechanisms that are responsible for either health equity or inequities. And they've been getting more and more attention, especially in academic circles and professional circles. But I wonder about your thoughts about broadening the, the interest or the focus. How do we get folks, say legislators or the lay public, the general public, more interested in this notion of the social determinants of health or even simply to understand what we're talking about uh, us professionals when we, we use this this term? Well, you know, um, every one of us lives in an environment in which we um, work, live, play, pray. Um, and there are, there are things in that environment that allow us to easily um, live our lives. And there are things in that environment that make it more difficult for us to live our lives. So if you just think about a community um, which was built without any sidewalks and we People go out and exercise. Well, you can do that, but that means you have to walk in the street. Mm -hmm. You have to get in the car and go somewhere to actually walk. And the challenge in many of our communities is that you can't walk in the street because the streets are too busy or it's mm -hmm. too dangerous. You certainly wouldn't let your kids do it. Um, and if you don't have an automobile uh, or it's too far away or the, the walking path in your community is too inconvenient, you're much more likely not to walk. So if you really want people to walk, then you need to make those communities walkable, which means you need sidewalks. Mm -hmm. um, those sidewalks have to lead somewhere. Otherwise, it's a very boring walk. Um, if you think about access to food, the fact that there are many parts in our community that have robust access to um, grocery stores. You go to the grocery store, and you can find what you want. It's at an affordable price. The food is fresh. It's safe to eat. Far too many of our communities, you have to take two bus rides um, carrying loads of bags. So were you more likely to shop if that happens? You're more likely to go to the to little corner store where mm -hmm. the food is more expensive, where it's maybe, maybe less fresh, not always, um, but the selection is very narrow. So what do you, what you end up in those places? High fat, high fat, high salt, low nutritious foods. Mm -hmm. And so if you just think about the way we've constructed our communities, either on purpose or by accident, um, it's easier or, you know, to, to do many of the things that are of normal living. Um, and our goal in terms of addressing the social determinants is to make communities so that everyone has the opportunity for a grocery store with lots of, of opportunities to buy, you know, fresh, affordable foods to make sure every community is walkable, to make sure that the school um, is such that the kids can get to. You know, far too many of our kids have to be bused to school, mm -hmm. see the school, but it's not safe for them to walk to school. Mm -hmm. So they're not gonna get the physical activity that they need. Um, and, you know, they're gonna be in a bus that, um, and they also have to get up very early to get on the bus. 
So it, it, it impacts our community the way we've actually designed it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it almost sounds like some of the, um, the key ways to explain this to folks is some of the concrete experiences, our day-to-day experiences, and, and how they are either promoting or hindering good health. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, if you just look from a historical perspective, just residential segregation, mm-hmm. that uh, we've designed those communities. I, I, um, I talk about the fact that every community um, has a railroad track that goes through the community um, and you can visually see it. On one side, it's, there's affluence. On the other side, there's poverty. Mm-hmm. But in addition to the economic differences in those two communities, the negative health outcomes track with the lower income communities as well. Right. And, and the truth is, if you go back and you look at some of the original zoning laws, we designed those communities to be just like that. That mm-hmm. may not have been the original intent, although I must, I must admit, in some, in some cases, that was the original intent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want to fix that, you, you can fix it. Zoning. The fact that we know that high-density communities with lots of liquor stores have a higher incidence of alcoholism, higher incidence of violence. If you want to fix that, change the zoning laws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that gives us hope, too, that we that these situations aren't set in stone, that we could change it, that there are tools that we could use uh, to design healthier communities. And I think that actually leads me into another question I wanted to ask you. This is maybe a two-parter. What do you see as the biggest successes of late in health equity and addressing social determinants? And what are the biggest barriers that we still have to contend with? Well, you know, we've we've begun to look at um, health um, in communities at the zip code level. So now more and more, um, we have the county health rankings is a great example, where we have counties right close to one another um, that demonstrate those communities that I just described. Mm-hmm. You can visually see the difference. Um, we now have maps which show within, you know, five-mile, ten-mile differences, huge differences in health outcomes. So it gives us an opportunity to measure progress, um, to measure a baseline and measure progress as we change things. So um, for policy, they can say, look, you know, health outcomes are in my community aren't what they ought to be. Um, I'm looking at the community next door. Here's what they have. Here's what they've done from a policy perspective that seems to benefit their community. How can I now do that in my community to improve that health? Mm -hmm. This is both a benchmark and it gives us some tools um, on a policy framework that we can make changes. The other thing is it takes away this argument that, you know, the people that are unhealthy are bad people. They have somehow misused their bodies. Or brought but, it on themselves or something. Yeah, they brought it on themselves. Well, look, behavior is a big issue here. Right. But um, some of those behaviors are driven by the environment in which they're, they're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can work on both the individual behavior aspects. At the same time, we work on the structural aspects which um, enhance the behavior aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And the, the county health rankings that you refer to, these are the, um, it's the Robert Wood Johnson funded project that provides some really incredibly detailed information, you know, summary, essentially a, a detailed health profile of all these individual counties. So we've got a tremendous amount of information at our disposal now. We do, we do. And if we want to be data-driven, that's important. Now, by the way, this is is not a secret, right? Everybody who's worked in governmental public health or in a social service organization or in a housing organization providing services knows what communities we're talking about. The economic development people know exactly what communities we're talking about because all those problems overlap. Mm -hmm. So um, while the problems may be a little different in each community, each of those communities have challenges. Now, by the way, all those communities also have strengths that one can build on. And so we should acknowledge the strengths in those communities, build on them, um, and then try to remove the negative influences that, um, that dissuade our health. Right, right. I think that's important to remember the, the resilience and the strengths that are inherent. We can't always be looking at things as the problem, the deficit, the, um, the lack of something, but there's also at the same time something going on that keeps these communities going. You know, there may be things that we could leverage, positive aspects that we could build on. Yeah. So as, 
as I told you, uh, our podcast series is really geared towards local public health professionals uh, in the spirit of continuing professional development. Do you have any thoughts on what the <coughs> local workforce needs to know uh, to understand health equity, to grapple with social determinants of health, or maybe how we train up our local uh, public health workforce better? I think there's, there's, there's several tips for, for our local um, practitioners who are trying to grapple with these problems. Recognize that, of course, every community now um, has to do a community health needs assessment. Either the hospital has to do it as part of their nonprofit status um, or the health department, um, which has historically done these kind of community health needs assessments. And I think every community ought to look at the data. Second thing you ought to do is recognize that we in the health world cannot do this by ourselves that the, the way we've made the most progress is by pulling together multidisciplinary, multi-sectorial teams mm -hmm. and, and, and come together and say, okay, here's the problems we're trying to solve. Um, here's a team that can help us do it and then work together and leverage what we all bring to the table because it often doesn't require a lot of new money, sometimes no new money. It simply requires us to make sure that we're all going in the same direction, that our policies are coherent that they make sense together, that one agency of government isn't undoing something that another agency of government is trying to do. Mm -hmm. Sequence activities um, in, in such a way that we leverage each other's strengths. And in doing that, you'll find that you have enormous success. Um, and also don't, you know, recognize what the problems are, fix the problems that are most important, but realize that what I, as a health official, may think is the most important problem may not be what the community thinks is mm -hmm. the most important problem. And I would let the community lead on this because mm -hmm. my idea that, yeah, we've got an obesity problem is important. And I go in and talk to the community. What the community says is, no, no, no. What we need is we need the streets fixed. We need the, the lights fixed so we can go out at night. Because you want us to walk. You can't address the obesity problem until you fix some of those structural issues. Right. I was to walk safely in our community. So that might be what they what they need to have done first. And then we can do a much more comprehensive look at the obesity problem in the community, as an example. Right. I think what you said about, you know, making sure everybody is aligned and maximizing the resources available, that's so important for a lot of our smaller health departments where you have limited personnel, limited budgets, uh, and also that alignment with what the community wants, uh, that nothing you know, our programs aren't going to succeed if we go in trying to do something that nobody has prioritized, that the, the folks in the community uh, see a different need or it's somewhere else in their rankings. There's, there's something else that's right. in top priority. Absolutely. It, it also helps you build trust. And, and until you build trust with those communities, um, then you're just government coming in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, I have one uh, final question for you. I just wonder, is there anything else that you'd like to share with me and with our listeners about uh, health equity and working on the social determinants of health? Sometimes these programs seem like, and the problems seem like they're too large to solve. Um, and they're not. Um, they are big problems. They are complex problems. But I would encourage people to take a piece of the problem, work on it diligently, show that you can improve it, and then go on. Uh, recognize that if you do it that way and don't get hung up with um, the, the, what I call the paralysis of analysis, mm -hmm. um, you, we, we will accomplish and improve our health of our communities. It's, it's, a, it's a task. You always take four steps forward, three steps back, you know, two steps forward, half a step back. But as long as you're continually going forward, you'll have progress. Right. Those are some, that's some good advice there. Good words of wisdom. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to chat with me, uh, Dr. Benjamin. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing what, what else uh, comes out of the annual meeting and uh, from the association. I, I thank you. And I, I'm, I'm pleased that I have an opportunity to talk to you today. I really appreciated talking with Dr. Benjamin. And I appreciate how the American Public Health Association has emphasized health equity and the social determinants of health. The association even has a webpage devoted to the topic at apha.org, and it includes fact sheets that you can download. I'll make sure that there's a link to it in the podcast notes. Now, a couple of things came up in our conversation that I'd like to revisit. 
Dr. Benjamin mentioned the county health rankings as a source of information about the social determinants of health. This is a great resource. It's funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, maintained at the University of Wisconsin, and there's a searchable website online. I'll make sure that the link is also included in the podcast notes. You can look up any county in the U.S. and get a summary of its key health outcomes and the key factors that contribute to those health outcomes. Now, there's nothing labeled as social determinants of health per se, but you'd recognize that some of the categories are absolutely about the social determinants of health. Take, for example, the category of social and economic factors, which includes things like high school graduation levels and unemployment rate. Now, I'm also plugging the county health rankings because I'm a great believer in working efficiently, especially by using the data that have already been collected. The county health rankings are a great place to start if you're looking for information about your community, say, trying to get a sense of its health profile and areas that need strengthening. Dr. Benjamin also referred to the process of doing a community health needs assessment. I imagine that many listeners know that this is a planning review that's required every three or five years, depending on whether it comes from a hospital or a health department. But without knowing it, Dr. Benjamin set up my next conversation very nicely. I wanted to move from thinking broadly about the issue to specific ways that local folks might address the social determinants of health. And I was thinking about folks in local health departments and what they might do to take action on the social determinants of health. And in fact, I thought that my own local health department here in Johnson County, Iowa, might offer some good examples. Johnson County has made health equity and the social determinants of health a priority in their latest health improvement plan, which is the action plan that follows the data gathering of a community health needs assessment. So I asked Dr. Nalo Johnson to chat with me, and we'll get to that conversation in just a moment. But I should also make a confession. Full disclosure, I'm a member of the Community Advisory Board for the Johnson County Health Department. Maybe this gives me a little more of an insider's perspective, but I don't think it biases my judgment. Anyway, let's move on to my second conversation. I invited Dr. Nalo Johnson to join me to talk about local work on health equity, the social determinants of health, and data collection and planning. So first off, Dr. Johnson, thank you very much for coming and chatting with us. I'd like to start with a very general question. What do the social determinants of health mean to you? Excellent question. Um, when I think about social determinants of health, I'm thinking about those social, those economic, those environmental barriers that impact health outcomes. Um, I think people have a, a broad understanding of health in terms of one's physical health and healthcare access, but then we also want to move and think more broadly about understanding what other barriers may exist that also have an impact on people's health outcomes. So I know that Johnson County has done a lot of work recently emphasizing health equity and trying to address the social determinants of health mm -hmm. in the local work here. So I'd like to hear some about that. And I want to start off by asking you to describe a little bit a recent project, Healthy JOCO or Healthy mm -hmm. Johnson County. But I want to start by telling our listeners um, that you are the recipient of the Henrik L. Bloom Award for Excellence in Health Planning. This is given out by the Community Health Planning and Policy Development Section of the American Public Health Association. Uh, so it's a great honor to be recognized for this work. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Um, but maybe we could start with just what is Healthy JOCO? Yeah. Well, Healthy JOCO is our community health needs assessment and health improvement planning process. And we're very excited about this effort. So it was wonderful to be able to be recognized by our peers for the ways in which we have constructed this methodology around how to do assessment work and planning work with your community. Uh, what we desired to do with Healthy JOCO was, well, our main goal was really around broad community engagement. So when you look at the models that are out there around assessment, oftentimes you'll see convenience surveys or you'll see focus groups with um, a small number of people representing this larger um, idea of who your community is. And we really wanted to push ourselves further to say who isn't traditionally at the table and being asked their opinion about their community health needs um, and incorporated not only that idea around broad community engagement, but also how we could then marry these more robust 
um, public health evidence-based best practice research methods in data collection efforts. Um, so we've done things like um, deploy intercept surveys, deploy a CASPER community um, rapid needs assessment tool, mm -hmm. um, con conduct a community asset mapping exercise with a local youth serving agency. All of these different touch points with community members using these evidence-based practices, um, but also being very mindful and intentional about targeting the breadth of the community in order to gather that information. That's really interesting. And I was going to ask you a follow-up question mm -hmm. about what exactly, what strategies, what, mm -hmm. what ways you've been able to bring community members more into this process. Mm -hmm. But this, this is the process to set um, priorities or goals for the health department activities and bringing the community in more, more directly into setting those priorities or giving you the information to set those priorities. Absolutely. And our, another you know, byproduct of this process was really to change people's um, mindset or um, maybe make them think differently about their relationship with the health department. So we spent a lot of time cultivating relationships with community members on an individual level, but also with our partner organizations um, on a more, I guess, uh, systematic level um, and understanding what we what we mean when we say healthy JOCO as a methodology for assessment and health planning um, and it's really shaping we looked at it as professional development opportunity so not just for the staff in the community health division but across the department from our public health nurses who are normally giving immunizations mm -hmm. or providing um, nutrition information to our environmental health specialists who are normally doing uh, food operator inspections and that type of work we've exposed them all to this understanding of things like community-based participatory research methods mm -hmm. um, and the specific CASPER methodology so that it's really, um, as well as relied on a, a student group of undergraduate and masters of public health students so they could be a part of this experience and understanding what it means to do work in the field as a, a local public health practitioner. Um, so all of these touch points really allowed uh, community members to have a relationship to the health department in a way that they couldn't experience before. And so it really seemed like this um, ability to co-create with the community around this new concept of Healthy JOCO. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's almost breaking open the, the health department, something that may be a bit inscrutable or invisible mm -hmm. to a lot of people, unless maybe you went to the immunization clinic mm -hmm. or you went to the WIC clinic or you had some, some interaction otherwise, but you know, bringing people in more than normally they would have. Absolutely. So let me just ask a quick follow-up. You talked about some of these specific strategies, things like intercept surveys mm -hmm. and CASPER methodology. Can you tell me what, what that is? Break that down sure. uh, a little bit more for me and the, the listeners who may not be familiar. Yeah, so as we, again, part of our desire to have this broad community engagement was the desire to rebrand what we were doing. Uh, people couldn't necessarily understand and, and find um, accessible the concept of a community health needs assessment and health improvement plan, or a China hip, <laughs> some of us in the field call it, or chach hip, as some folks in, in the field call it. Um, so instead, again, working uh, uh, with community members, with our staff, what is something that could encompass what we mean and our purpose around doing assessment and planning and prioritization? Well, we're, we're looking at a healthy Johnson County, a healthy JOCO, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, we subsequently then branded all of our data collection efforts to follow that um, nomenclature. So our intercept surveys we refer to as Healthy Joko Chats. We recognize this would be a convenient sample type of survey, but again, from a relationship building standpoint, it had that dual role of helping us understand at a very basic level what people are identifying as community health needs, but also allowed us to be out in the field with our Healthy Joko t-shirts and our literature. To, we also created a website so we can share this information out that we're collecting. So healthyjoko.com, I will plug. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so we could provide people with little business cards where they could find the website and read for themselves about some of these community health and public health practices. So this is all part of that larger engagement strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, so our strategy for the Healthy Joko Chats was to identify key community events throughout the summer. Uh, so we were at your traditional places 
things like Iowa City Pride or Juneteenth or Hills Fourth of July Fest. Uh, but we also selected key locations in the community. So we were at the Center for Workers Justice and um, the North Liberty Rec Center Senior Meal um, and the Iowa City Johnson County Senior Center. So we very much wanted to be intentional about where we were showing up as well mm -hmm. to make sure we were able to speak to a breadth of community members. Uh, so that's how Healthy Joko Chats or our intercept surveys work. Um, and those are just having your, your workers go up and mm -hmm. talk to people and ask them, you know, can I ask you about, you know. We had three questions. Okay. And we, so we had a set of demographics, uh -huh. your traditional um, zip code, how do you identify for gender, how do you identify for race and ethnicity, um, what age range you fall in, and what is your primary language that you speak in your home. Mm -hmm. So we could run some demographics on the data. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had three questions. What's your primary health concern for you personally? What's the primary health concern, in your opinion, for your neighborhood? So thinking about the space where you live in. And then what's the primary health concern, in your opinion, for the county or our broader community? So we could look at what the differences are between um, those three oh. different responses. Those um, are some interesting questions because you get at, you know, what is my individual mm -hmm. concern, but then what do I think is the concern for my neighborhood, for my county? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, being able to look at the analysis on those responses, which as a member of our steering committee, Dr. Gilbert, you'll hear <laughs> all of this. Um, there's some similarities between the, the three different levels, um, but there's also some differences. And so what does that tell us about what may be some important to someone personally, but they think differently when it gets at that, at that larger scale, when mm -hmm. they're thinking of their community, so. Was there any surprising result from these types, mm -hmm. when you look across the different types of questions, anything mm -hmm. that you could share now uh, about that? I guess uh, if this airs in January. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, one of the things that surprised me, and this isn't my area of expertise, so maybe that's part of my bias to why it surprised me. You know, I come from a health promotion, chronic disease prevention, and communicable disease background. So um, Water quality and air quality was uh, most frequently mentioned concerned at all three levels. Oh. And that was unexpected for me. That it was so consistent. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so I think what we're calling now based upon these findings from all of our data collection um, areas of curiosity, for me that rose to the top as one of these areas, one of the items that rose to the top as an area of curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we can, again, it was in the summertime. Was there a lot of news stories on water quality issues, air quality? I don't know. There's a lot of factors that could have influenced people's responses. Right, right. But that was something that, that surprised me that I wasn't expecting to, to see as a, a most frequently mentioned concern, and especially at all three levels. Yeah, that seems especially striking that, you know, somebody would say it's my individual personal concern, and I also think it's a neighborhood concern mm -hmm. and a county concern. Absolutely. So, yeah, very striking. Yeah. So uh, our second major data collection was our door-to-door uh, -door survey, and we utilized the CASPER methodology, and CASPER is a CDC-developed tool, which I'm going to do my best here, the Community Assessment for uh, Public Health Emergency Response. It is a CDC-developed tool that's often deployed after times of uh, disasters, such as a flood or a hurricane. Um, it's like a, a rapid needs it's assessment. It's a rapid needs yeah. assessment. So okay. to understand, you know, what are the immediate needs within mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. community now that we've had this major incident occur. Mm -hmm. What we chose to do with the CASPER, because of the ways in which um, it allowed us to collect local level data that had the potential to be uh, scientifically valid data because it's a, uh, a survey of a randomized selection of households and then you weight that uh, based upon population statistics. So they mm -hmm. have their whole methodology. Um, again, we wanted to look at how do we move beyond the convenience survey, intercept survey sample, and be able to have a more robust scientific, scientifically valid data set along with that. So based upon their, um, uh, we augmented the survey, let me step back, to be focused on the social de determinants of health. So our tagline for Healthy Joe Co. is live 
work, learn, and play, which aligns with County Health Rankings and Roadmap's definition of what is health. Right. It's found in the places where you live, you work, you learn, right, and play. Right. We, again, really subscribe to that idea around a broad understanding of community as well because we wanted to acknowledge the fact that we do have a large part of our population which is only with us for a short amount of time because they're here at school. Or we do have a commuter population where people may live here but work elsewhere, or they may um, come into our community because they work here but they live elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But they're still a part of our community. Right. And we have people who come here to recreate, right? So they're still here um, within our community participating even though they may not have that um, everyday tie to our community as well. So along with this idea of broad community engagement, also understanding, have, taking a broad understanding of our definition of community. Right. So utilizing this tool, um, we focused uh, our questions around social cohesion, so connectedness to community, around um, some work and employment questions. Um, we also deployed a health literacy tool. It's a scientifically valid medical literacy tool to have an understanding of the rate of higher or low literacy based upon the survey respondents and how that could impact our public health messaging. And then we also had questions around places of recreation and we were specifically interested in kind of the public versus paid admission percentages. So how could we help decision makers know where they should be investing their resources if people mm -hmm. are choosing public spaces like parks and trails to recreate versus going to um, the mall or other um, right. downtown Iowa City activities, those kind of things. Right. So based upon the CASPER methodology, there are population thresholds and we were able to conduct the CASPER in Iowa City, North Liberty, and Coralville, which we did over two weeks in the summer. Um, the goal was to speak again, based upon their methodology, with 210 households in each community. And if we had an 80% uh, response rate in each of those communities, we would have the meet their thresholds for waiting. Unfortunately, we did not. In total, we had, I believe, it was about 244 surveys that were completed. Mm -hmm. um, which was still a valiant effort, given that we also had a heat advisory <laughs> where we couldn't be out in the field. So we lost about four days of the, the two-week time period, and that greatly impacted our efforts. Right, yeah. Um, but what we were able to do uh, we was look at the three communities in total and do our weighting in that way. So we're not able to say, yes, we conducted a CASPER, but we are able to say we used a CASPER methodology to be able to collect this data and analyze this data. Right. So looking across those three communities is how we've chose to do analysis. Well, it certainly sounds like a step up in terms of rigorous, you know, scientifically based mm -hmm. methods for gathering information. And I'm curious, this sounds very intensive. Mm -hmm. uh, was there support for implementing this? Or say if any yeah. of the listeners are interested in oh, using something like this, uh, yeah, is there any, any resources that they could turn to? Absolutely. Um, before I answer that, I'm going to f just finish what we ended up sure. doing after. So a part of what we learned through the CASPER was now that we weren't beholden to those population thresholds, how could we then take that ca uh, CASPER methodology and implement it in our less populated communities? So we were able to use the same methodology for the randomized selection of households, use our same tool. I'll also note we did this all on tablets using um, ArcGIS and Survey123. So from an efficiency and a sustainability standpoint, uh, it made a user-friendly experience for both our staff deploying the survey, but as well as the participants. So we had the survey down to a six to seven minute time period when we were on somebody's doorstep asking for their time, which I think also oh, that's greatly so increased our participation rates. So it's not gonna be a big burden no. to not at, yeah. Not at all. Not uh, at all. But we were able to do that in our seven remaining um, incorporated communities in the county. So that meant, again, under that goal of broad community engagement, we met that. And we chose to identify two census blocks within each of those um, communities. So out of a total of uh, 98 um, attempted surveys, we were able to get 75 out of those communities. So that was a 75% response rate, which nearly, which yeah. was excellent. Um, and so in terms of when you say, like, basically, what's the scalability of <laughs> something like yeah. this? Yeah. I think it, it 
did take time and effort. So in the summer, um, we had that student team. We called it our Healthy Joko student team. I will note only half of that team of 13 were actual interns who were getting course credit for working with us. The rest were students who volunteered over, over 80 hours of their time working with us and being in the field. And I think that really um, speaks to the value they found in the experience that they were that committed <laughs> as a volunteer to, be, to say they were gaining something out of having this experience with us through the Healthy Joe Co. effort. Um, that's really impressive. I, I'm, that's so why we get were, awards over yeah. there. <laughs> so not only you're drawing in the information, getting information from yeah. the, the whole community, but they're also we are, as folks an, volunteering to as be As an part accredited of public health department, we uh, take seriously our commitment to helping build the future public health workforce. So this was a professional development opportunity, not only for us uh, uh, internally, but also for our ability to yeah. make sure students also have that kind of exposure as well. Very good. Yeah. But I do think that's something that we will be able to help and share as we reflect on this experience is that scalability. So we had the student team in the summer um, for we deployed the rural incorporated survey um, in over three weeks. So we also gave ourselves an extra cushion time <laughs> given what we learned in the summer over three weeks in September. Um, and we utilized uh, all of our staff, so community health staff, um, some additional staff members out of the public health department, and a couple of additional members from the student team who um, agreed to help us out in the fall as well. Um, so it's time intensive, but I think if you know your population size, that you're able to determine number of people, number of hours, what those expectations are to be able to fit it to your department's needs. So I wouldn't, I guess my message is, if you don't have a division of 10 staff like I do, <laughs> that you still have the potential if you know from the start what it might look like in terms of hours in the field or mm -hmm. hours mm -hmm. of preparation. Um, and that is part of, we are writing articles on our experience that we hope to publish, so we hope to be able to provide that guidance um, to other local health departments who may want to attempt to do this later. That would be really helpful. I mean, it's helpful hearing what you did over the summer and then in mm -hmm. September, but also if it's written up that folks could come back later and review it and say, okay, how would I take something like this and implement it in my community? And uh, I think that would be very helpful. Absolutely. And I can't underscore Yes, this is a more robust way in which to gather your assessment data, you know, hands down. Mm -hmm. But I cannot underscore what it means to be in the field and have your team be able to have interactions with the community members that they serve. And, you know, anecdotally, in some of these communities, we have people who we're so excited we showed up on their doorstep <laughs> and we had a strong communication strategy about this as well which was very intentional um, they're excited that they, they, they were, were being asked for their opinion exactly yeah. exactly all the way to the other spectrum where people were why did it take you this long to come to my community and and have a conversation with me uh -huh. so it means something that yeah. again as you had pointed out earlier people may not have a reason to interact with the with the health department unless they have a specific service or, or question, and instead the health department's coming to them to know their opinion, to learn their, their, their story or hear about their experience and have that inform our decision right. making. Well, you know, what you're just saying now reminds me so much of this definition of health that it's not simply the absence of disease, that it's well-being in all areas. Mm -hmm. And this fits in really nicely, like mm -hmm. you're not waiting for folks in the community to come because they have a problem, because there's an emergency, because mm -hmm. there's something, a crisis, but going out almost proactively, what, mm -hmm. what makes a healthy community? What is wellness? What do we need to do to ensure a healthy, well-functioning community? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Great. And we also think that having those touch points, you know, on a very like, logistical standpoint, being out in the community allowed us to have exposure to different sites where you know, for example, here's a new community rec center that we didn't know existed. So as we go out and 
share the findings with community members and conduct a prioritization process, here are these additional sites in, in throughout the county that we know we can go to because these are the place of information for this particular community. So there are so many ways in which I am a proponent of the method that we've now undertaken. Yeah. Well, this is really great hearing about the details. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could take a step back for a moment and I'd like to hear where the interest or the emphasis in things like equity and the social determinants of health mm -hmm. came from. What's driving that interest at the County Health mm -hmm. Department? I think that nationally, as I'm sure you've explored in <laughs> many of your other conversations, that there's been a growing interest in understanding the ways in which health equity is key to the work that we do in public health, both uh, from an academic point of view, but also from a, as a practitioner uh, point of view as well. Um, and the social determinants of health, I guess let me back up. For me, health equity is understanding where health disparities exist amongst populations and then being able to target strategies specific to uh, that health disparate population because the goal is you see increased positive health outcomes, right? So um, hopefully that's understood at this point that a one-size-fits-all public health strategy is not going to get right. us the kind of outcomes across the board that we're looking for. And there's such um, uh, integral way in which the social determinants of health impact health disparate population. So, mm -hmm. you know, talking about those in, in combination with one another makes sense. So I feel like as a local public health department, we're really just following that national strategy, thought, um, embrace of this concept of health equity and social determinants of health. Um, and by far as a community health division, that I think we've embraced the ways in which we need to think differently about our work and um, the ways in which we built the Healthy Joko methodology is an example of how we're trying to attune to health equity and the ways in which we're doing things. You've told me a lot about the details of what you, you actually did and, and maybe alluded to some of the, the next question I have, but I'm really curious to hear about what worked well, what were the successes mm -hmm. And then what were the challenges or obstacles that you encountered and how you, you worked through any of those challenges? Mm -hmm. So I think the successes have been um, being able to communicate the importance of what we're doing and thinking differently about uh, the health department and its role in the community and its proactive nature versus reactive nature. Um, being able to find support and buy-in for this methodology of bringing in broad community engagement in a very authentic way um, with the more robust research methods for data collection and analysis. Uh, I think people, um, from a leadership standpoint, we've had that support um, for investing in tools like the tablets to conduct the survey um, and bringing on new positions such as a full-time epidemiologist so that we can do the analysis ourselves and not necessarily have to rely on um, our friends at the College <laughs> of Public Health to uh, lend your expertise all the time. Um, so this is from the, the top leadership in the health department saying health department this is something that we're going to pursue and mm -hmm. we're going to devote resources to it. We'll make sure that right. this, this happens. Not just the health department, but our board of supervisors as well. Uh -huh. So being cognizant that, yes, this is the health part department leading this effort, but we're doing it under the auspices of the county and we're doing it on behalf of the community. So I think there's also been a great buy-in from, um, we have a steering committee, which the steering committee consists of a cross-sector of community leaders and from our nonprofit leaders to um, folks who are at our health systems to uh, folks who are at the school district. So uh, again, representing those who are serving our community. Um, so hearing that kind of feedback that they believe in the effort as well and see it as meaningful for us to be investing in this way to learn more about our community health needs, um, I think has also been very supportive. Um, challenges, I think with any effort it's, that's new and you don't know how people will respond, 
So, you know, I was a part of conducting our first set of Healthy Joko Chats, which um, was at one of the summer arts festivals <laughs> here in Iowa City. And we went out and we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know if people would talk to us or, or not. And well, sure, because you'd never done something like this before and didn't know what the reaction would be or would people stop and, and answer your questions. Exactly. Yeah. But it was overwhelmingly positive. So the idea of um, trying something different was okay. We had a, a hunch that this would be something that people would engage with. We did our research to think about what methods would make sense, um, and people responded. The things that I would say challenge-wise is it was disappointing not to be able to hit our numbers so that we could call our door-to-door -door survey a CASPER. Mm -hmm. That was mm -hmm. disappointing, but we also learned from the process to be able to structure it differently next time so maybe we could hit those numbers. Um, and yet we still have collected data that is meaningful and as you mentioned, more robust than traditional methods. And that I feel is moving us forward. So there's, there's a balance there between the successes and the challenges for right, sure. Right, right. And, and speaking of the next time that you do this, will this be part of the next community health needs assessment process? The, yeah. for, for the health department, you do it every five years. Mm -hmm. Some organizations, especially when they're uh, part of a local hospital, they may be doing it every three years, but you're planning to repeat yeah. this. Our goal with this is Healthy JoCo is our assessment and planning methodology. So we uh, will be deploying these efforts anytime we need to respond to an assessment. Um, so if, for example, vaping is obviously touching all communities right now. Right, right. We currently have our tobacco health educator in the field with students educating on our new vaping prohibition that the county passed this summer um, to extend those prohibitions where all uh, smoking is prohibited um, and utilizing the same strategies of a student team with a survey about education um, and deploying to businesses. So this is our assessment method that we move forward with. All right, mm -hmm. excellent. Now. I just have a couple more questions for you. One is, uh, are there any lessons or tips that you would have for other local health departments that may want to implement something similar, either doing another CASPER, using that specific methodology, or just doing more community engagement? Anything that you've learned through the process that would be helpful for other health departments? Mm -hmm. Authentic community engagement is key and relationship building is at the core of that. So I think you need to have a mindset that you're willing to invest the time and energy to build those relationships. So for example, our community asset mapping exercise that we conducted this summer, we conducted with an organization called the Dream Center. This is a largely African-American serving organization uh, focuses on youth and families, and we worked with their summer youth leadership program. Uh, we spent three separate sessions with them, um, constructed a, uh, or hosted a public health fair where we went in, met the students, brought in um, our, one of our environmental health specialists to talk about food inspection, our tobacco health educator to talk about tobacco control, our um, emergency preparedness planner to talk about your personal preparedness and people got to make personal preparedness kits with him um, as well as some other kind of community health strategies um, and that was our first introduction to just say we want to expose you to this is the work that your public health department does our second session we conducted the community asset mapping or community resource mapping exercise with them augmented it to talk about what do they see as resources for people, places, and things in their neighborhood. And then we did a photo voice exercise. So we provided them in the next session with uh, disposable cameras so their counselors went out into the community with them where they could take pictures and visually represent what they saw as resources and gaps. Now we targeted this um, particular organization because we know the African-American population in Johnson County is a health disparate population across a multitude of disease rates as well as things like tobacco use 
and yet we don't have significant relationships or programs targeted specifically towards this health disparate population. So it was very intentional about building a relationship with a community organization for one of our health disparate populations that we know we can continue to grow and build. And therefore, when we come to some other conclusions around our assessment strategies, um, can be more well-informed about how to approach interventions for that particular population. Right. And what really strikes me there is this, this balance. Your assessment methodology may actually be one of these you know, rapid, quick, quick methods, but you are investing a lot of time and effort into mm -hmm. building those relationships, setting the stage mm -hmm. so that you can do those either rapid assessments or, like you said, come back later. This is going to be an ongoing relationship. Mm -hmm. You're going to... Uh, you know, develop a, a whatever, a, a history or, or mm -hmm. moving forward with them. Oh, all right. It's a both and for sure. And, you know, one final question I, I have for you along the lines of lessons that we can take to other communities is, do you think, is there anything else that you think we should know? So I've spent my career in mostly rural environments um, from a public health perspective. And I think one of the things that we see both locally but also at the state level and the national scale, uh, that there's very much a difference in capacity depending upon where you're at. So here in Johnson County, we have 48 FTE in our department. So we have many different roles, like I said, having a full-time FE to be able to do data analysis is not something you're going to find in a small rural county health department, right? right? right. So recognizing that um, there are capacity differences. And Johnson County has a lot of resources from the large health department, mm -hmm. the university that's right here, mm -hmm. lots of community organizations. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right, the difference between urban and rural areas mm -hmm. um, in resources, what you might have at your disposal, mm -hmm. um, that can be quite stark sometimes. Absolutely. And so I think what my challenge is, is to say, don't, don't feel limited based upon where you may have some limited capacity. Instead, think about ways in which you could grow that capacity. So whether that's partnering with a larger local health department who may have some resources that they can share with you, mm -hmm. like having an epidemiologist that can assist you with some of your data collection and analysis efforts, or whether you can reach out to your College of Public Health and have students who um, may be able to either for course credit or through their own kind of personal growth and development be able to assist with your efforts or being able to look at the resources that are available through some of our leading national organizations like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, or County Health Rankings and Roadmaps, or the Public Health Foundation, all of these resources that exist, um, to be able to utilize some of the tools and templates that are out there uh, so you're not having to, to feel the burden of creating these on your own, but really just growing the kind of capacity that you have regardless of what level in order to do things in a more robust and meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you very much for sitting down to chat with me. This has been really fascinating to hear about all the details, all the activities that Johnson County Public Health has, has taken up. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure and thank you for being a part of Healthy Joko with us. My pleasure. It was a real pleasure talking with Dr. Johnson and hearing the details of a local health department's efforts. If you want to see more of what Dr. Johnson was talking about, go to healthyjoco.com. And again, that link will be in the podcast notes. Now, I have a few concluding thoughts to share. You know, one thing that came to mind as we talked was that old saying, no data means no problem. Dr. Johnson talked about how important it is to collect and use local information and I already mentioned the county health rankings, but in the spirit of leaving listeners with more resources, I'd like to mention a couple of other products from that website. Folks who are beginning to take action on the social determinants of health may be interested in two publications. One is called What Works? Social and Economic Opportunities to Improve Health for All. As you can probably guess from the title, this short guide fits nicely under the heading of social determinants of health. 
It's an 18-page booklet that has brief summaries of intervention strategies that have a good evidence base to support them. There are broad categories about improving educational outcomes, addressing income and employment, and strengthening families and social support. It's a very good starting point as you plan action on the social determinants of health. And a second publication from the same website that I'll draw your attention to is entitled, What Works? Strategies to Improve Rural Health. It's a very similar summary to the previous one, but as you'll guess from the title, it focuses on rural disparities. It's a 20-page booklet that includes details of health improvement strategies specifically in rural contexts. I think it's important to call this out because we often neglect rural areas when we think of health disparities, but it's a very important dimension to consider. In fact, every state in the nation has some rural areas. So I'll make sure that the links to both of these resources are included in the podcast notes. And with that, I'd like to wrap up this episode. I hope that you found something that will help you in your work, and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Alejandra Scoto, Paul Gilbert, Casey Ginn, Mike Honig, Kathleen May, Felicia Pieper, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner. Theme music for Share Public Health is composed by Dave Hohen and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.